6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 44 through 45. Can you imagine yourself as Cyrus, world conqueror, obviously on an ego trip, and yet hearing this, a letter written to him by name over a century earlier? 150 years earlier, outlining his career, outlining the techniques that he used to subdue the world empire called Babylon, all written in black and white almost two centuries earlier. Would you be impressed? You betcha you would be, and history records Cyrus's response. He does some interesting things. First thing he did was he reversed the policies of the cruel Assyrians and Babylonians that he conquered, and he released the peoples that were subjugated to go to their own homelands. The style prior to him was one, if you subdued people, you moved them to cut them away from their roots. You transported them to your land because it was a way of subjugating them. Cyrus reversed that. Not only for the Jews, the others too. He not only gave them permission to go back and build the temple, he gave them the money to do it, or at least a budget. He contributed to it. He gave them financial incentives to return. Only 50,000 went. 70 years have gone by. They're comfortable in Babylon. But the 50,000 that do go back do rebuild. Under the leadership of Zerubbabel, they rebuild the temple. And that's recorded in the Bible in Ezra and Nehemiah and all of that. It is some time later that Nehemiah, cupbearer of the king, is disturbed because they're not making much progress because they're beset upon by their enemies. The temple progress is very slow because they don't have the authority to rebuild the, the wall of the city. So he gets permission from Artaxerxes Langemanus, the ruler at the time, to uh, actually implement the directions that Cyrus had left, gives the authority for the city of Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And from Daniel 9, you know that uh, Gabriel had told Daniel it's 173,880 days from that point until the Messiah would present himself as king. And Sir Robert Anderson is famous for having discovered the fact that from March 14, 445 B.C., when the decree of Artaxerxes to rebuild the city was given to Nehemiah, unto the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem on April 6th of 32 A.D. was 173,880 days to the very day. And Jesus himself wept over the city. And because you didn't recognize your day, he says in Luke chapter 19, it is now hidden from thine eyes. And Israel as a nation is blinded from that day until, Paul says in Romans 11:25, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. But then the game changes. And God will once again deal with the planet Earth through Israel. And they're setting aside as our opportunity as the church. 70th week of Daniel and the church are mutually exclusive. That's a whole other issue. But back to Cyrus. Interesting guy. Interesting passage. Interesting passage. If you were Cyrus, would you be impressed? You and I have a lot more than Cyrus did. You see. We not only have the letter of Cyrus, we have lots of other letters. 
we have the predictions of God, not just of Cyrus's name. By combining the insights from Ezekiel chapter 4 and Leviticus 26, we know it was 2,483 years, 9 months, and 21 days from the completion of the servitude of the nation until May 14th of 1948 when David Ben-Gurion used Ezekiel's authority to declare the Jewish homeland, the nation Israel, to the very day. From the servitude of the nation to that day. The desolations of Jerusalem from the third siege of Nebuchadnezzar. Desolations of the city from the completion of that 70 years to the day, which it was. Counting from there the same period of time, 2,483 years, 9 months and 21 days, you come to June 7th of 1967 when Israel regains the biblical city of Jerusalem, the old city, to the day. So the precision, the foresight, the insight, the disclosure that God gave Cyrus is tame compared to the letter he's written you and I about what he's doing in advance, demonstrating that he is God and he involves himself in the affairs of men. And he's involving himself as we speak. He says that Europe will emerge as a major world government. It's happening as we speak. He says that the republic called Russia, known as Magog in the Bible, is going to arm a group to invade Israel. They're prepared to do that. He says Israel will be gathered in the land. Jerusalem will be back in Israel's hand. He says the temple is going to be built three times in the New Testament. And they're starting. Look around. It's exciting. It's vastly more exciting than the passage we just read. And it affects you and I as we speak. It's happening now before us. Praise God. But getting back to Cyrus, God isn't through. That's just the front end of the letter. God's just getting warmed up. When we read the book of Genesis, we read the creation. It's interesting because God is just presumed, not argued for. You ever notice that? Well, he fixes that right here. We're going to talk about the creation here a little bit. We're going to learn some things you may not have known. Verse 5, God continues to Cyrus says, and to all of us saying, I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee though thou hast not known me. That they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. Whoops. Let's think about that a minute. It's interesting in Genesis it says I, he separated the light from the darkness. See, I was very naive. In high school physics, I thought darkness was the absence of light. Not today in modern physics. thing called black holes. You can have light that can't escape because of gravitational intensity. So separating the light from the darkness is a whole different ballgame. I'll let you chew on that one. We'll move on. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create sorrow and adversity. The word is evil, but the word ra in the Hebrew means adversity or calamity. The consequences of sin. God didn't create sin, but he assures the consequences of sin. I, the Lord, do all these things. Distill down or drop down, ye heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open and let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe unto him who, that striveth with his maker. Can you think of anything more stupid than to strive or argue or contest with the God of the universe? Whew. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. 
Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth, who makest thou, or thy work, he hath no hands? The clay, arguing with the clay about the potter. That's a repeated model in the scripture. We see it in Jeremiah 18, the first 10 verses. Paul uses it in Romans 9, verses 10, 11. You know, shall the potter say to the clay, why have you made me thus? You know, the, I love the way the kids respond to all that. Where does the gorilla sleep in the forest? Anywhere he wants to. Psalm 2, 9, so forth. Verse 10, Woe unto him that saith unto his father, Why begettest thou? Or to the woman, What is that brought forth? Thus saith the Lord, The Holy One of Israel and his Maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. Command ye me. See, again, God uses his authentication of his message, the idea of describing things that yet yet to happen. Prophecy, predicting the future, precisely, and not 90% of the time. 100, right, 100%, 100% of the time. That's the track record. Check it out. Verse 12, I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even I, my hands, have stretched out the heavens and all their host have I commanded. There again, I love that phrase. I've always, as a kid, always just figured that was a poetical phrase, stretching out the heavens. And a lot of uh, critics, you know, attack that as sort of a, you know, uh, an anachronism. You know, as if the sky is some kind of curtain. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Today, we speak of the curvature of space-time. And as you increase the radius, you create gravity and mass. We speak now of three spatial dimensions and one dimension of time. Particle physicists tell us that there are ten dimensions. Four are measurable, six of them are curled, and less than ten to the minus 35 centimeters not knowable by normal methods. How interesting. Maimonides, studying Genesis 1, wrote that 800 years ago. From Genesis 1, he concluded that the universe has ten dimensions, four are knowable, six are not. How did Maimonides know about particle physics 800 years ago? Interesting. What a coincidence. (laughs) A coincidence is the world's way of trying to make God anonymous. Verse 13, I have raised up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let go my captives, not for the price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. Thus saith the Lord, the labor of Egypt, the merchandise of Ethiopia, and of the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over unto thee, and they shall be thine. They shall come after thee. In chains shall they come over, and they shall fall down unto thee. They shall make supplication unto thee, saying, Surely God is in thee, and there is none else. There is no God. Verily, thou art a God who hideth thyself, O God of Israel, the Savior. Savior? That's an interesting word. They shall be ashamed, and also confounded all of them. They shall go to confusion together that are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded world without end. Then we have verse 18. And does this usher in a hornet's nest? Before we get into this, let's remind ourselves. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 1 and explore the text a little more closely. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning... God created the heaven and the earth. Bereshit bara Elohim, the heavens and the earth. Can't quarrel it. Period. Carriage return. New subject. 
The Bible is the only book, only religious book that transcends time and space. All other religious books assume three spatial dimensions and one linear absolute time dimension. Only the Bible recognizes there are more than those dimensions. More than that. Only the Bible recognizes that not only matter and energy, but time and space itself had a beginning. That's consistent with our insights from modern physics that time was not, is a physical property associated with mass and energy and so forth. And, and matter, yeah. The Bible recognizes that. Incredible, incredible, transcendent insights. But we get to verse 2, and something strange is here. It says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The Hebrew uh, grammar experts have a field day with this one because it's complicated. The word was is not passive. It's an active verb requiring an object. And some argue that it should be the earth became without form and void. Without form and void. Tohu vabohu in the Hebrew. Strange words. They occur a couple of places in the Bible. One of the key places it appears in is in Isaiah 45, verse 18, and that would be fine except God seems to make a strange point in verse 18 of Isaiah 45. Let's read it. For thus saith the Lord God, which Lord God? The one who created the heavens. Oh, God himself who formed the earth and made it. So the scope of the, the text right here is the creation, the creation of the earth. Thus saith the Lord God who created the heavens and God himself who formed the earth and made it. He hath established it. He created it not in vain. Why? See, technically it's a contradiction. See, he did not create it in tohu, in confusion. God is not the author of confusion, right? And he says he did not create it in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. Well, wait a minute. Let's go back to Genesis. I thought it said here that the earth was without form and void. Yes, God didn't create it that way originally. Oh, really? And so this gives rise to a controversial view held by only some scholars that the grammar, of the grammar and the tying together of the two passages suggest that something happened unrecorded between verse 1 and verse 2. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth became without form and void and all kinds of other things happened, which we're well familiar with from Genesis, Genesis verse 2 on. So this is called the gap theory, the, that concept of a gap between those two verses. There's another issue that emerges. We have in the Bible, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, several other places, the, the origin and career of a cherub, the anointed cherub that covereth, the number one super angel who rebels and gets in deep trouble. One called Lucifer, one called Satan, and several other names. What's strange is, and we all know the story about Satan and his fall, and one-third of the angels fell with him, according to Revelation 12. Question is, when did that happen? Because when you get to Genesis 2, we have Adam created, and right away in Genesis 3, we have Satan running around making a mess of things. When did he fall? And some scholars conjecture that that may have happened between the first two verses. And I think Donald Gray Barnhouse's book, The Invisible War, paints this very colorfully. Because it suggests the idea that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And then there was this rebellion by Satan, and there's hints in Ezekiel 28 that his original abode was somehow, his throne was on the earth. Different kind of earth in those days. And he's judged. The word tohu vabohu appears throughout the scripture, and it's interesting, every place it does, it suggests desolation as a result of judgment. 
And so some scholars feel that's implied here too. That what we're seeing here is the result of that judgment. And uh, Barnhouse, among others, conjectured that maybe eons went by and he was unable to repair it. That is Satan. See, the earth became without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Maybe for a long time. Until the Spirit of God brooded on the face of the waters. And on we go. So there is the view that what we really have here is a response, if you will, to the judgment of Satan. Or at least the initial uh, judgment of Satan. Many scholars rebut this and feel it's not valid. Other scholars think it's, you know, has some merit. I tend to lean to the second view. But let me uh, uh, mention something else. This in no way deals with the issues that people like. People, nothing wrong with the gap theory except the way people misapply it. It's got nothing to do with dinosaurs and fossils and such. That's all later. You see, we've got several major discontinuities to be aware of. The first discontinuity, looking back, is Noah's flood. Recognize that we have little idea about what the earth was like prior to the flood. It wasn't just a lot of water that drowned a lot of people. The earth changed. We know a lot of things about it, enough to know it was really different. Universal climate before Noah's flood. There was no such thing as rain. It was a different kind of cycle altogether. We know the, the air pressure was at least two to one more than it is now. Pterodactyls couldn't fly without twice two atmospheres of pressure, and so on. There's all kinds of insights we get to tell us that we don't really know what it was like. But an even bigger discontinuity to be sensitive to is the discontinuity prior to Genesis 3. We only know the universe post-curse. We have no concept of what the world was like prior to Adam and Eve countermanding, if you will, the, the one rule they had to live by. The way I like to dramatize what I'm getting at is prove to me that Adam only lived in three dimensions. You can't. Adam's existence, he walked with God, he was clothed with light. His whole existence was quite different than we presume it to be. So the discontinuity before Genesis 3 is enormous. So for us to conjecture on what discontinuities might have occurred between the first two verses of Genesis 1 is foolhardy indeed. It certainly has nothing to do with fossils. Let me give you a very key fact to remember about fossils. They're dead. Ever notice that? And that means they came after Adam. Because death came by, by sin. Now, a lot of people get upset with that one too, but that's a whole other debate. I believe the entropy, I think that's when light started speed, uh, slowing down. Setterfield, Dr. Setterfield, it's, uh, Barry Setterfield and Trevor Norman have, have suggested from the evidence very controversial, of course, but uh, for lots of reasons, I suspect that that's when entropy was introduced. That's when the decay was. That there's a lot of scripture on the entropy laws. That's a whole other study. Interesting, interesting times. Anyway, Isaiah 45, the whole idea of the tohu vubohu in verse 18. Whether you buy the, the theory or not, it's not important. Just be aware of it at least so you're not blindsided. And recognize it's not built just from Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 in the grammar, although it's a key part of it. It also is built in part upon a passage in Jeremiah similar to this one and especially Isaiah 45, 18 that we've just gone through. And again, recognize that even if it's true, it's usually misapplied. It's got nothing to do with some of the problems that some people try to apply it to to solve you know, biblical apologetic issues. That's, that's a, mis a misapplication. Verse 19. God continues, I have not spoken in secret. And that reminds you what Jesus Christ said in John 18, verse 20, during the trial, the so-called trial. 
I have not spoken. I, I have never spoken in secret, in effect, he says, in a dark place of the earth. I said not unto the seed of Jacob, see me in vain, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, ye who are escaped of the nations. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from the ancient time? Who hath told it from the time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God beside me, a just God and a Savior. Again, interesting. God and a Savior. Interesting. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be saved. Interesting phrase. Echoes two things. It echoes Numbers 21 when there was the plague of the serpents. And Moses is told to take a brazen serpent and raise it up. And everyone that looked to the brazen serpent was healed of the vipers. Those that didn't die. Strange event in Numbers 21. That brazen serpent, of course, becomes a fetish that Hezekiah, some 800 years later, has to destroy because it had become an idol in its own right. But Jesus Christ in, in John 3 mentions this Nicodemus. As, as, as Moses raised the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be raised up. What a strange symbol of Jesus Christ. A brazen serpent? Yes. Brass is the, is the metal that would hold fire. It speaks of judgment. Levitically, in all the implements, brass speaks of judgment. The serpent speaks of sin. The brazen serpent raised in the wilderness is symbolic, predictive, it's prophetic, if you will, of one who was made sin for us and raised on a cross, so that everyone that looks to it should be saved and none other. Verse 22 in Isaiah, look unto me and be saved, God says. All the ends of the earth. I, for I am God and there is none else. I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Does that sound familiar? Yes, because it's in Paul's letter to Philippians, chapter 2, verse 10. That unto me every knee shall bow, Satan's included. And every tongue shall confess. Certainly shall one say, in the Lord have I righteousness and strength. Hey, that's the key point. Not your righteousness, his. You don't want to stand on your righteousness. God help you. You don't, don't ever pray for God's justice. You pray for his mercy. You want him to impute his righteousness to you that you might have fellowship with him so that you can inherit that destiny that he's prepared for you that is so fantastic there's no way you on your own can be eligible for it. But praise God, he's provided his eligibility on your behalf. Surely one shall say to the Lord, Have I righteousness and strength? Even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed, and the Lord shall all the seed of the Israel be justified and shall. Glory. End of chapter 45. In Isaiah, some of these things we go a little faster. Some places we sort of take the time. And I think Isaiah 44 and 45 justified a little extra excursions. Fun, fun time. And the key verse in many respects is the verse that we'll encounter next, chap next, next time's reading in chapter 46, verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times of things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do my pleasure. God has always called his shots. Amos, he says that through the prophet Amos, I will do nothing but that which I reveal to my servants, the prophets. So God has told Cyrus what he's going to do. He said it in advance, put it in black and white before Cyrus was born. Cyrus was impressed. God has told you what he's going to do. 
He's going to allow a world government to cover the planet Earth, emerging out of Europe. Phase two of the Roman Empire. It's happening as we speak. He describes that Russia is going to arm a group of nations against Israel, and there's not an Arab among them. A lot of Islamics, but no Arabs. Interesting. Study Ezekiel 38 carefully. It's ready to happen. And from chapter 39, verse 6, it smells like a nuclear exchange. I'll let you chew on that one a while. God says that Israel will be regathered in the land it was, it was established on the day that he predicted. He said that Jerusalem will be under the control on the day he predicted. And he also describes the temple being rebuilt and they've started. Interesting, interesting times. God describes Babylon reemerging as a major world power and it started in a small way, but it started. What does this mean for you and I? Fascinating book, a supernatural book, having its origin from outside the time domain. God authenticating its source by transcending all time. By describing in detail what's happening. And as we stand, we watch, and he tells us there's going to be a climax where he's going to intervene in human history. And the events preceding to that, he lays out in detail, and they're happening before our very eyes. What are you going to do about it? Shine it on? Or are you going to take it seriously? Are you going to take the Bible seriously? Are you going to take God seriously? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he says. Make sure of your position with respect to the Yeshua HaMashiach, the Messiah of Israel, the one who came once to fulfill that mission and was coming again to be the avenger of blood. Don't leave here tonight with any doubt about your position in Christ. If you're in Christ, praise God, then the question is, what are your priorities? Are you going to really get serious about the Bible? Are you going to get really serious about your relationship with its source? You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.